SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators, and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of On the Tape. Uh, I am Dan Nathan. I'm joined, as always, by Guy Adami, and we also have EY from SoFi. That would be Liz Young. Welcome, people. What up? Hello. What up? You know, it's funny. Like, a lot of these folks, they see us together. We do the podcast together. We do Market Call together. We do the CNBC together. And you think that we're, like, good friends. You know, you think that it's not just a show <laughs> for the for the podcasting <laughs> listening audience or the, the Market Call viewing audience. Or the CN- But, you know, it's funny because we're just kind of sitting here chit-chatting about the weekend and this and that or whatever. And Guy just said, oh, I was at the Ranger game on Saturday. I said, oh, you know what, Guy? I was, too. And uh, I said, thanks for the look. That sort of thing. You know, we don't even get to have a beer together in between periods. Well, no, because like you – you, when you go to the games, you sit in the box, and when you're in a box, you're not watching the game. You might as well be in friggin' Mequon, Wisconsin, watching the Ooh, game. It's the same like pull. that. It's a good pull. No, so I like. I was the all the way up there in one of the lounges with like 45 diehard Ranger fans. Yeah, no. Okay, well, we could have said hi to each other. We could have had a beer in between periods. You know, Liz. I mean, you know, uh, give me something here. Yeah. I mean, we're all still friends. I was not at the Ranger game, so I didn't I didn't slight anybody. All right. No, you didn't. Um, and I'm going to see you, I'm gonna see you <laughs> later this week. You and I are going to be having martinis and steak together, I think, Thursday night. How's that? A little Como's tequila to finish it all off. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I don't know that I'm going to have a martini. I haven't thought about it yet. And the last time that I got accused of having a martini by myself, it was by you guys yes. at a bar. No, it was me. And it, like, it didn't even occur. No. So, I'm never going to be seen in public having a martini again. All right. By Thursday night, you're going to need at least one martini. And I'll tell you why, because we got a big week here. We have what, um, you know, uh, about 65, almost 70% of the S&P 500 have reported earnings. We have a couple big ones. We're going to hit a couple of those. We also have the all important 
Fed May meeting here. This is going to be a big one. Uh, Fed Chair Powell has a presser on Wednesday at 2.30. And we also have a whole heck of a lot of economic data, which we have jolts. We have the April jobs report. Um, that's coming later on in the week. But we got to start with what's going on here uh, with First Republic. And, you know, stick around. After this conversation, we have Brett Jefferson. He is the uh, CIO, co-founder of Hildine capital management he deals um, in the banking sector in private credit and guy and i had a great conversation with him friday afternoon previewing a little bit about what we thought was going to happen with first republic and his outlook for um, financials and the private credit space so stick around for that all right let's talk about what's going on over the weekend on our friday on the tape podcast guy adami we kind of highlighted the fact that Jamie Dimon and some of these other big banks were not going to get in before this thing was in receivership. It is in FDIC receivership here. What are your thoughts on this? Jamie Dimon had some comments about what this means for this regional banking crisis. Well, there's no reason to make bids for distressed banks in today's world because it appears as though you know, you're going to get much better terms once they find their way into receivership. And I think that's one of the things that we learned. And I also think if you listen to some of the commentary over the weekend, I actually listened to Gary Cohn this morning on Squawk Box. And again, he talked about probably more to come. He was concerned about uh, what's going on in commercial real estate. He was also concerned about the consumer. But he pointed out that, you know, why do something sort of a priori when you can wait till after the fact and get these things at bargain discount prices? He also mentioned correctly, I think, that, you know, as big a deal as it is and the, and the pundits are making out of it in terms of J.P. Morgan, is it really going to move the needle for them in terms of earnings, uh, in terms of what it means for the stock price? I think what you're seeing today specifically is a relief rally sort of flight to quality in some of these bigger banks that we've talked about for a while will be the beneficiaries of all this. But if you really peel this entire thing back, what does it speak to in terms of the landscape, in terms of the importance of small and regional banks to the broader economy? Again, I don't think it paints a particularly rosy picture. Yeah. So Liz and JP Morgan CEO is out this morning saying this part of the crisis is over. Um, banks will consolidate. It says not going to keep the First Republic name. So you think about that, right? And you think about just kind of the palpitations that we saw in the market. And to Guy's point, what he just mentioned is like community banks and regional banks are really important to 65, 70% of the U.S. economy, which is small, medium-sized businesses, right? And so one of the reasons why banks like First Republic or Silicon Valley or Sig signature, all of which have failed in the last six weeks or so, had their ability to kind of grow the way they were growing is that they were offering services, whether it be on mortgages to individuals or to banking customers that the big banks just wouldn't do. They wouldn't underwrite this sort of stuff. So what is your take on what this could mean for an economy that is clearly slowing here? And we've also, and you've mentioned this on many occasions, just look at the underperformance of the Russell 2000, which is the small cap index, which is basically flat on the year versus an S&P that is up, you know, 9% and a NASDAQ that's up 17%. Is this likely to kind of choke off some of the lending that would be necessary for small, medium-sized businesses in the U.S. to keep things going at a time where rates have just gone up so dramatically, the cost of capital is harder. And then if we do have a slowing economy, what does this kind of all mean for that? And is it too soon for Jamie to say, you know, the, the worst is over here? 
Well, first of all, I mean, we're seeing, you know, a decently positive reaction in the market. I think part of that is, and I talk about the surprise factor, I don't mean that from an earnings perspective, but surprise factor to the stock market. I mean, this First Republic thing is not a new headline. It's almost as if it took it took too long, right? We've all been waiting for this to happen for what feels like weeks. So this was not a surprise, I think, to the market. We were waiting for uh, what the final resolution would be. And I think this was a pretty well expected resolution uh so it, there's no there's no negative surprise to the market today i've also said and i i sort of agree with jamie in the sense of i think that this type of headline is probably getting to be over in the sense of are we going to see another big regional bank fail for the same reason i don't i don't think so i mean there might be some smaller ones but i think this particular style of headline is probably nearing the end of its popularity. What I think could happen, though, is I don't think the financial system is necessarily done making headlines, but it'll be for different reasons. And there's a couple things about that. We have begun the headline about commercial real estate and the defaults that have picked up, which is very much a, a B2B sort of space, and it doesn't really hit Main Street. I know we've talked about that a little bit on here, but I think that will become a much more front and center conversation as it heats up. The other thing that I think people should remember, and this is where the small and mid-sized businesses comes in, there's publicly reported companies, right? That They have a stock that trades on the New York Stock Exchange. They report earnings every quarter. They talk about their lending portfolio. They talk about the activity. They talk about tightening credit standards. And we get a pretty transparent view of how small and mid-sized businesses are getting their money from those companies. But small and mid-sized businesses also get a decent amount of private credit. And that is not necessarily reported in the same transparent way. And there has been reason to believe, because small and mid-sized businesses have said it themselves, that private credit is more and more difficult to get. So it's not just what we're hearing in the news, what we're hearing during earnings season. There's a bunch of other stuff that's bubbling under the surface. I'll finish this by, I actually want to ask both of you a question. I thought about this before we came on today. Uh, last week in my blog, I wrote about some parallels to 2002 and the earnings season that occurred in 2002. Earnings bottomed in the fourth quarter of 2001, but the market didn't bottom until about three quarters later. However, here we are on a Monday with a big bank failure, which feels much more like 2008, right? Both of you lived through both of those, right? I was in college for 2002, but I lived through the 2008 one. What's your sense of what's more similar here? What's what's the trading environment that you're seeing today versus maybe how it felt in 2002 or how it felt in 2008, 2009? Are there more similarities to one or the other? Yeah, let me jump in real quick. I would submit more 02 for me than 0809. 0809 was a three to five month period of time where it felt like the world was collectively coming to an end on any given day, and it felt cataclysmic, and you really didn't know what the next shoe was to drop. This feels far more orderly to me, which suggests O2 is the better sort of parallel. But you know, I don't know if that's necessarily right, because I think people are far too quick to discount things as well in this environment. So 
it doesn't feel like 0809, but it doesn't mean there are not some similarities between what happened in 0809 till today. Yeah, this feels very much like first half of 2008 for me, and I, and I'll tell you why. I, I'm not going to touch that kind of summer, September, October period of 08 when we had the major failures, right? So Bank America and Lehman, and obviously Merrill Lynch was was backstopped by Bank America, and Lehman, you know, was basically failed. But to me, you know, that period where J.P. Morgan uh, bought Bear Stearns for $2 on a Monday, okay? And Jamie Dimon was probably saying a lot of the very similar things that he's out there saying this morning. And there's a lot of other people. I saw Tom Lee out on Twitter suggesting maybe that this marks the bottom, that sort of thing. People were saying the same thing about Bear Stearns, okay? And the stock market, the S&P 500, over the next two months into mid-May of 2008, rallied 15%. The BKX, the index that tracks the banking sector, rallied 20%. And people felt we were kind of out of the wood. But I gotta take you back to November of 2007 when the NASDAQ was at its all-time highs. And what's really important back then is like rates were high relative to the where they were in 2002 by 2007, but they were about to go much lower. And when you think about where rates are right now at Fed funds at 5% on Wednesday afternoon, to me, this feels very much like it has the potential for things to go off the rails. And I'll just say this, you know, Liz, you made a great point about the regional banks and maybe they are contained. Now we've just had the big ones go under and maybe there's some smaller ones. Maybe there's lots of smaller ones, but the FDIC has basically told us they are going to insure deposits. But let me ask you this, Schwab, this was at the center of the storm. Okay, this stock is was $85 in the start of January, and now it's 52 and a half. It's about to go down on the day. It's only up about 6% when they reported just a couple weeks ago, and people thought that maybe they were a bit out of the woods. What does it mean for uh, the deposits at a brokerage firm that has a bank like that, okay? What does the shadow banking sector look like? You just talked about access to private credit, right? So what are all these listed um, you know, uh, private equity companies? Is there any problems there as it relates to uh, commercial real estate? And so this is the thing that I think plays out over the course of the summer into the fall. And we're going to be asking that very question that you just asked Guy and me of each other, I think, for months to come here. And I just don't like the setup as we kind of get through, you know, the bulk of earnings and you know by the end of this week i think it's about as good as it gets right here and i think we could actually kind of put a pinpoint as it relates to tech on that reversal at amazon amazon was trading where was it guy 114 in the aftermarket or something no i think it got higher than that actually um but it doesn't matter to your point the knee-jerk reaction was to take amazon higher Uh, then obviously the conference call happened and they mentioned that they're AWS was slowing. And I think that is obviously the big growth engine and the stock hasn't traded particularly well since. And I think all those points are extraordinarily fair. Greg Ipp in the Wall Street Journal last week had a really interesting article and about what we're talking about. And mutual funds have exposure. Pensions funds have exposure that we have not even scratched the surface with yet. And it's a tremendous amount. If you think about the dollars, I mean, he was talking about somewhere between 65 and 70 trillion dollars worth of exposure with some of these things. So I don't think by any stretch of imagination it's over. Again, on the backdrop to your point of a Federal Reserve that's raised interest rates to 5%, un- unprecedented amount of hikes in a that amount of time, the market to me, for whatever reason, and this is something that I've gotten wrong, I thought we'd be feeling the effects long before. The lag effect is a lot longer than I thought it would be. But if you read some of the earnings reports, you start to see some of the layoffs again, 
it suggests we're in the early innings of exactly that. Yeah, well, I'll just say this. The, the reason why I just mentioned Amazon and that AWS is just their exposure across. It's not like massive platform companies, tech companies. You know what I mean? It's a lot of small, medium-sized businesses. And so you could say, well, maybe Google Cloud and Microsoft Azure are taking share. I don't think that's what's going on there. So to me, that's why I think that was like a canary in the coal mine. Liz, let's talk earnings here. Um, overall, this is from John Butters, earnings insight analyst over there. Um, at FactSet. This was as of his Friday report. 53% of the companies in the S&P 500 reported results for Q1. Uh, and of those companies, almost 80% have reported actual EPS above estimate, which is above the five-year average of 77% and the 10-year average of 73%. So he also goes on to say, in aggregate, companies are reporting earnings that are 6.9% above estimates, which is below the five-year average of 8.4%. So we know that earnings estimates have come down fairly dramatically right over the course of the last four months or so. And to your point, Liz, that you just made about that kind of 01 earnings trough, right? And then where markets finally bottomed a few quarters later, is this kind of some of the thinking that you, that you have here is that if the earnings recession ends before the economic recession, we might have the bottom in the market. And it is important to note that the S&P is about 20% above its October lows here. So are you starting to feel like we're we're in a new bull market here, Liz? No. <laughs> in, a, in a word. Back to you, Dan. Let me let me expand on that. So if if things go as expected, earnings will come in marginally negative for the first quarter, negative for the second quarter, uh, and then that would be sort of the bottom. There is expected to be modest growth for third quarter results. If that's the case, then we see a bottom in earnings, you know, late summer-ish, let's call it that, when we look back on it uh, on a 12-month trailing basis. And the economic recession, if we have one, I'm willing to bet would be uh, all but confirmed, although the NBER will not have said so yet, right? But we'll have data probably that indicates as such, because we'll be starting some quarters where GDP growth is also expected to be negative. This is going to be a very long-winded answer, but it'll make sense towards the end. I was asked recently by somebody who is not in the industry, and I know all three of us have had this experience, um, when you get asked something by somebody who's not in finance and you have to explain it to them in, in very layman's terms, right? So I got asked just very simply, what is the bear case? Why, why are you bearish? And I usually allow myself three points. So the first point was, we are decidedly late cycle. I won't go through all the signals of that, but late economic cycle. The second point was valuations are at a level that where earnings are, if we're in the middle of a contraction in earnings growth this quarter and in the middle of an earnings recession, why in the world would we be paying over 18 times forward earnings in a period like that and in a year where we're expecting flat growth? That doesn't make sense, right? You, you don't pay more money for something that's not growing. So that was the second point. And then the third point was just the collection of headlines that continue to come in headlines like that are not usually indicative of a new bull market or an early expansion economy. So from the earnings perspective, I think what's happened is that obviously we all know everything has been revised downward. It's still, we're in this weird, this weird place where it's just not as bad as we thought it would be, right? When we started earnings season, things were expected to be down, I think 6.7% at worst, right? That was the worst sort of uh, quarterly decline that we saw. Now we're going to be down maybe 3%-ish, so better than expected. But I think we have lost sight occasionally of the fact that that's still a decline. 
and that's still a contraction, and that's still an earnings recession, which again is part two of a three-part series in a classic economic decline and a classic what would be market bottom that occurs probably somewhere between the earnings bottom and the end of a recession. You just mentioned 02 or 08. And so Guy, my question for you is, is like, if this is like 01, 02, then we know we've seen the data about how many 20% plus rallies that the market had. So why couldn't what we're in right now, if the lag effects to your point of rates where they are, okay, um, with a brewing, I think, banking crisis or financial sort of situation here that's going to weigh on growth. Why couldn't this just be some period in 02 when we're in the midst of one of these big bear market rallies and maybe the earnings recession just drags out longer and we end up having a protracted bear market, right? And so like that that's, that's to me where I come back and I put those two periods together and maybe it's a bit of PTSD because the, the bear market and the recession that we had in 2020 was a bit of a joke. We had to throw about $5 trillion at that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of this equation as well. Not only are we feeling the lag effects um, from the Fed tightening, but it's also all that money that was sloshing around has probably lengthened this entire thing. And, you know, again, this is unprecedented period of time that we're living through. And I think we're all trying to navigate it, some better than others. But, you know, I'll say this as well. And Liz makes a great point about valuations and why would you be willing to pay up? And I totally agree with her. We had Brian Belsky on, I believe the On The Tape podcast, by the way, drops every Friday at your favorite podcast store, smash the like button. Uh, but he mentioned the reason why you would pay up is for the certainty, I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing to a certain extent, but the safety of, of the US equity market in uncertain times, which is somewhat counterintuitive to me, but it seems to be playing out right before our very eyes. I think People are viewing the U.S. equity market in this some perverse way as a flight to quality in a very um, shaky world. Look at what's going on in Europe. I mean, their inflation problem is far greater than ours, so much, in fact, that, you know, they're willing to forego growth and sort of really hamstring their economy by continuing to raise rates. But that's a global problem. And, you know, the fact that the equity markets here aren't seeing it yet is a bit perplexing. The market's expensive. Earnings have been slowing, despite the fact that they're, I guess, better than people thought they would be. It's still a decline. And the euphoria around certain areas, specifically this AI phenomenon, where it's just dragging stocks higher uh, for some perceived notion that, you know, this is going to be the panacea, the next growth engine for a lot of these companies, to me, yeah, it might play out, but it's not playing out tomorrow. Well, it's funny, as we're taping this right now, um, the NASDAQ's taken a bit of a breather and some of the names that have reported over the last couple of weeks and put up some good numbers are actually read on the day, but NVIDIA just crossed $700 billion in market cap. It hasn't done that really since it's topped out um, you know, on its way down in, in late 2021. So here we are, we're at a level here. I mean, back to when it just seemed like you could throw a dart at high valuation tech stocks and they were gonna go lower. And this stock in this market, after everything, Liz, that you just said about valuation is trading at 23 times sales. Okay. Like just think about that and, and just put it in a nutshell a little bit. And I think it's important to also note is that the Tesla bubble 
popped, okay? And we saw that again with their earnings report and the result that it had afterwards. So I'm just curious, Liz, do you look at some individual names? I know that you don't look at names as far as um, make recommendations on them and, and model their earnings, but when you see the sort of irrational exuberance, to Guy's point, in a handful of names around this AI trend, doesn't it make you a little bit nervous that we haven't really bottomed yet? Absolutely, especially because it's around a trend that we don't really know how it's going to turn out. I mean, I think AI is here to stay. I think it's going to have a huge influence on a lot of industries, but not next month. And it's going to take a while for that to play out. I would go back to a comment that Guy just made about something that Belsky said. Maybe the safety of the U.S. equity market, and in particular, the safety or the perceived safety of tech, big tech, and some of these very well-known headline-making names it, that works. That argument works as long as people have not taken money completely out of the equity market, right? It's like if I, I want French fries and you offer me 14 different varieties of French fries, I'm going to pick one French fry. But in reality, at some point, what if I just stop eating fries altogether and I'm going to eat apples instead, right? So if people take money out of the equity market, that argument stops working. I just don't think that's happened yet. So perhaps we're the, you know, the okay choice on a bad block, but it, I think we still need to have that moment where everything comes back to earth a little bit. And the AI trend, you know, it's going to continue, right? They'll continue talking about it, but it's, I don't think it's going to move the needle in the next two to three quarters. I think this is a five to 10 year thing and there's going to be winners and losers. There's going to be companies that do it well and companies that don't do it well. Right now, everybody that's entering into that space is getting rewarded for it. So over time, some of that will come out in the wash. By the way, Dan, I think one of the most underrated, obviously everybody goes to McDonald's French fries when you sort of talk about the Mount Rushmore, but the French fries at Roy Rogers are extraordinarily underrated. And to the extent that you can find one in your area, I encourage all of our listeners to visit one. By the way, the roast beef sandwich uh, pinnacle. Back Just to you, stop. Dan. I, I think that you're dating yourself here a little bit. Um, Liz, what do you say about your girlfriends when they're dieting and they order sweet potato fries? You got you got a take on that? <laughs> I'm not a sweet potato fry fan. I mean, they're still fried. It's not You're not helping your waistline. You're just getting a little more vitamin A. Why bother? Okay, speaking of Sorry our waist. That. That's me. I apologize. <laughs> All right, let's talk about this Fed meeting here, guys. Um, you know, I, it feels like the best case scenario would be a sort of dovish hike, if you will. Um, it seems like, you know, consensus is definitely around the fact that this are going to kind of be one um, and done. I think it's interesting that our friend David Rosenberg over at Rosenberg Research in his note this morning is saying the Fed continues to play um, with fire. Guy, thoughts on what um, like a best case scenario for the equity market would be? I know that there's a lot of bulls out there who are suggesting that if we do have some sort of hint that they're done for a while, that kind of gives the green light. But to me, it really goes back to that lag of this tightening policy, especially at a time with everything we just covered about the regionals. I'm going to answer your question specifically. You said, what's the best case scenario? I think I mean, even I would acknowledge that this 25 basis point hike, which will happen, is going to be the last one for the foreseeable future. But the best case scenario for people in the equity market, and I don't think this will happen, is that somehow Jerome Powell uh, acknowledges that the market is anticipating a cut in the back half of this year, and he speaks to that and maybe the possibility of that happening. Again, for the life of me, I couldn't understand why that would happen, but clearly the market seems to think that. But 
you know, my pushback on me pushing back would be why in the world is the market thinking we're going to see cuts in the back half of the year with an unemployment rate at three and a half percent and extraordinarily resilient labor market? It makes zero sense. And I think a lot of this rally that we've seen over the last couple of months has been predicated on exactly that. And I, for, again, I don't know what the market thinks is going on. And again, I've said this at least 100 times, but it's worth saying one more time. If you get Fed rate cuts in the back half of this year, man, I got to tell you something. It's because something really bad happened. So that's that's answering your question and then sort of um, pivoting on my pivot, Dan. Yeah, I, first of all, I don't think Jerome Powell likes surprises. Right now, the market is pricing in more than a 90% chance of a 25 basis point hike. So I think that's pretty much something we can count on occurring. Uh, I agree. I don't think he's going to talk about cutting because he would have to admit that they, if they cut, if there's something in their models that say that they're going to cut, they're also probably working in a recession between now and then, and he can't admit that either. Now, I'm sure that there's a chance of that, and they have that in some model somewhere, but it's not one that they're going to talk about behind the podium. The other thing that I think is going to be interesting here is if you remember, and we hang on every word, right? The nuances are always important. In the last meeting, uh, we stopped using the word tightening as much and we changed the word to firming. It could be that there's a new word that enters the chat this time. And that word will signal to people that a pause is imminent. And I think that's probably more likely. The market is really expecting that anyway. So we'll see if, the, if anything actually occurs reaction-wise. I Honestly, I think that this is a meeting where there's a chance that there's not much of a reaction at all in the market. And we'll find out. But I also am of the mind that I don't think 25 basis points makes that big of a difference here. I think this is more about messaging now and them not pivoting too soon. And they're going to have to do it just in order to continue sending this tightening and fighting inflation message. Yeah. Well, I mean, to your point, that last CPI reading was 5%. We're going to have Fed funds at 5%. If the market, if the stock market rallies with a VIX below 16 and the move index, you know, at 120 or so, and the equity market rallies on the idea of a pause, I think you sell that rip. Listen, you know, by the time the Fed does that, we're going to have probably, you know, the April jobs data is kind of baked in the cake. I believe they will have already seen that. Uh, some people say they won't. I know, Liz, you said they're going to see the jolts already. I think they know what the April um, jobs report is. And if it's not indicating a pause, if it's not as dovish as some might hope after the, the kind of one and done is, is kind of, um, I, I think, consensus here, then I think you sell the market and then I think you sell it again. And then we're going to have Apple's earnings um, on Thursday. And if Apple can't rally, especially after what we saw out of Microsoft and Meta um, and Alphabet, if, Mike, if Apple can't rally off of maybe a good report and a good guide, then I think it's over for a while. And I really do think we're kind of back towards that kind of trading range, which takes us possibly back to 3,800. Um, guy, I'm just going to say it, sell in May and go away. I know you no, love all those no, things. No, <laughs> I, no, no, no. We're going to have to bleep that out. I, I, know, I, I know. I know. I know. All right. Well, that's it here, people. We covered a, a lot uh, of ground. Can you imagine if May started on a Wednesday and it would be you'd go like hump day and then sell? It would make my friggin' head explode. Uh, it would be bad. It would. By be the bad. way, um, just worth mentioning: Milwaukee Brewers playing great baseball. Dan, uh, the Knicks in round two. Yep. Listen, disappointing game one, long series. Um, Knicks Heat harkens back to the 90s and again i don't i'm not burying the lead here but 
Rangers Devils tonight, 8 p.m. at the Rock. I mean, get ready, folks, because there's nothing like Game 7 hockey. And if you watched anything yesterday, the Bruins going down in overtime at home and historic regular season is thwarted by the Florida Panther team that had 4,545 less points than them and then obviously culminated last evening in Colorado with the Seattle Kraken beating the defending Stanley Cup champions. Unbelievable. Sorry, Dan. No, unbelievable. Um, All right, listen, stick around for our conversation with Brett Jefferson of Hilden Capital. And also, Guy and I, all week long, will be previewing all of these single stock earnings on the market call. That's 1 p.m. Eastern time. You can find it on the Risk Reversal Media YouTube page. Thanks for being with us this morning. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, Their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. All right, welcome back to On the Tape. We are here with, with guy. We gotta we gotta just kind of phrase it this way. You know, you and I, we're stock market guys. We options. We do a little commodities, all that sort of stuff. But we got like a really like we got a smart guy here. We've with just us today, elevated right? the collective IQ of this group, Dan. You know, you add the two of us, but you bring in Brett, and it just it's an exponential lift. Yeah, well, there it is. Okay, this would be Brett Jefferson. He is the president. He is the co-CIO of Hilding Capital Management, um, and we brought in a guy. Tell us a little bit about his business, about his strategy, the background, how he got here, but also to kind of help us make some sense of what's going on in the regional banking world. There's a few people, I think, who who have their finger on the pulse the way um, Brett does. Brett, welcome to On the Tape. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate being here. All right. First things first, though, before we get to the good stuff here as it relates to markets and your strategy, I just got to say this. Brett was on the 1988 Syracuse lacrosse team. It was absolutely the start of a dynasty. I was a high school kid, a teenager 
in Syracuse. And this was like a team that just kind of ch- kind of changed the game for lacrosse, didn't it, Brett, a little bit back then? And, and, and really, you've been involved with the game, I think, what, for the last 30 or so years. You were a board member of the Premier Lacrosse League. We know you from our fine teammate, Stephen Rafis, who's also an SU lacrosse alum. He did not win a championship like the 88 team, but he's trying to do so in the PLL. Talk to us a little bit about that uh, experience playing on, on such a storied team and your continued involvement with the sport. Well, it was one of the greatest teams of all time. I played with seven Hall of Fame players, two Hall of Fame, played for two Hall of Fame coaches. Just some of the just a few other guys like John Zalberti, who should be in there, who passed away a few years ago. I went there with thinking with uh, visions of grandeur. Uh, it was humbling. I was on one of the greatest teams of all time, and I was a goalie. So I was a second-string goalie as a freshman. I was a second-string goalie as a senior. It taught me a lot about, you know, hey, you got a job to do. You do your job. You might not always love your job, but that's your job. You learn how to do the best of it. And that taught me a lot. Played some club ball for about eight years afterwards. Coached high school lacrosse out in Chicago when I was in business school. That still is the best job I ever had. And then I became involved with the PLL. And I'm also on the board of the Toraton, which is, in essence, the Heisman Trophy of college across. The PLL is awesome, what they've been doing, what they are doing, and how they are really transformed the game. And I think their next step, which will be coming out this summer, which I can't really discuss, but a lot of it is just making the game more inclusive and trying to get more people involved the way it used to be. Mike Rabel and Paul Rabel are the best, and I just am really honored to be a part of them. And it's more so from just being a part of something from the ground up. No, it's amazing what the Rabel brothers have done, without question. If you think about Paul Rabel, specifically his arc, I mean, I can't speak all that intelligently, but I think one would say he's probably one of the top 15 or 20 lacrosse players of all time. But I think more than that, he's proving himself to be an extraordinarily adept business person that sort of sees where things are headed. I mean, he's really been ahead of the curve with all this. And to your point, you know, I think the the arc for them is just starting to grow. So I'm a huge fan of both those guys. I know Paul, I know George a little bit, but congratulations on all their success without question. No, it's very exciting. It's very, very exciting. All right, Brett, we got a lot going on in markets. Um, you, 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 Guy, and I have talked offline a little bit, but let, let's look at give our our listener a sense of, of your business at Hildeen. You started in 2000 um, and eight. You started at a period where financials were very much in focus back then. Talk to us a little bit about your strategy, how Hildeen ha- has kind of come to be and, and how you guys look at periods like the one that we're in right now. And we want to talk the macro. We want to talk about inflation and what that meant for rates and, and really what it means for your strategy. But let's take a step back and talk about the creation of Hildeen and your strategies in particular. Well, the creation of Hildeen happened when I got out of business school. I went to Northwestern. I got out. I was in a training program. One day they said, there's this new thing called CBOs. And I had to ask them what a CBO was. And they were starting to securitize assets with a credit component, high-yield bonds, leverage loans. And, and I did that for a few years. And then I was one of the first investors at a place called Marathon. I did very well, you know, figuring out how these different securitizations work. And it's a way different market than equities because you're really looking at three things. You're looking at the value of the assets, the value of the structure, and the value of the option, and the option being how these deals can break. And at the time when I was at Marathon, there was just a huge flaw in the way people were analyzing things. This is still an inefficient market. I know people talk about inefficient markets, but we can still find inefficiencies. It's just that this isn't infinitely scalable. It trades very, very different. I left Marathon in 06. I got married at this place called Hildeen. One day I said to my new wife, you know, I probably should go get a job. 
She said, yeah, it'd be great. And I said, okay, I'm going to start Hillian Capital. I knew how to invest. I didn't know how to run a hedge fund. I hired a guy who he thought he knew how to run a hedge fund. But collectively, we started off and we looked for different assets. And I found this one asset that was backed by community banks. And they were called trust preferred CDOs. And they were backed by small regional banks, community, when I say community and regional, it was more community banks and insurance companies. And these were securitizations. There were 91 of these securitizations that were put together. But because of the value of the option, we say the value of the option, meaning the only time you can break a CDO is either when times are really good and you can pay off all the debt, or when times are really bad, the deal goes into event of default. I looked at it and I said, it doesn't really matter what these banks are doing right now. It's will they pay us? And it really came down to this phrase we had, you know, par or failure. And the interesting thing about these trust preferreds is, is that they were allowed to defer for up to five years before they went into default. It was essence equity capital that was issued as debt. And the small banks just issued them and then they securitized them. And when the problem started in 08, 09 and 10, the regulators were basically saying, you know, stop paying your dividends on your trust preferreds. And they got deemed as a defaulted asset in the securitization written down. But uh, what people don't understand about a bank and where it's different than a corporation is in a corporation, you can really get into the granular aspects of the corporation, you know, really, really look into it. What we're looking at are the FDIC call reports. And we're looking at a few ratios that come out. Most of it revolves around your equity capital and your risk. And we're looking at this back in these times and I'm saying banks that are failing have 2% tier one capital and Texas ratios and Texas ratios, basically your bad assets over your good assets. You get over hundred, they say you got problems. Texas ratios of over 350. Here's five banks that are deferring in this deal and they've got 10% tier one capital and a 40 Texas ratio. That bank's not going to fail. And then we just did something, you know, really unconventional. We picked up a phone, called the bank and asked them if they were going to fail. And they said, no, the regulators are basically telling us we can't do this. So we're buying stuff for nothing. Uh, we still own a lot of it. It's rallied, obviously. But we've had some problem in the banking space. And, you know, for a long time, the regulators made it so banks were highly, highly regulated and conservative and couldn't do anything. And what I find really interesting about the problems we're having now is it's not so much about credit as it is more about business model and liquidity. And that's something which is very different. Yeah, no, without question. I mean, now it seems to be about just mismanaged duration risk, things that they did not take into consideration. There are a number of reasons for that we don't need to get into. But you know, let's talk about community banks, because my sense is over the last month and a half, your business just got infinitely more interesting. Not that it wasn't before, but you know, we obviously know what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. Again, in terms of the equity, First Republic, the 52-week high at $171 handle on it. As we're sitting here today, it's a $3.50 stock. Again, not that that's important, but there's a lot going on in regional banks. A lot of people, myself included, think that this is the first of many shoes to drop. And the banking industry, although nobody wants too big to fail, we're creating that right before our very eyes as we see deposits go from these mid to small tier banks to some of the larger banks. So speak to the dynamics around that. Sure, sure. There's three types of banks. There's your mega banks, your JPs, your cities, there's your regional banks. We'll call those M&T, Truist, you know, Fifth Third, and Silicon Valley fit in that one, and PacWest is in that. And then there are these community banks. There's 4,200 banks in the country. There used to be 8,000 banks in the country. There's a lot of small banks that you've never heard of because they're private or what we, they're what we call quasi-private 
meaning they may have stock outstanding, but it's all owned by the insiders. I think, I think the real dynamic that has occurred right now, you know, it has to do with you know, the oversight. And, but I'm not going to point fingers and say, gee, how could they have missed this? But if you listen to economists, if you listen to regulators, they are not the type of people to come out and make a proactive statement about something new that is going on. If you listen to economists, they always talk about what happened in the past. This is what has happened in the past. And they start comparing inflation today versus inflation in 1974. And you're like, we're in a very different world right now. One economist is different is Zervos. Zervos takes great views on things and really brings in what is going on today with all the different aspects. Regulators are the same thing. Like most people are not at a regulator by choice. They're there because, hey, I'm, in, I'm going there and it's a place I'm going to go on a stop because we contact regulators and every time we contact and that person has left. But what really happened with Silicon Valley and what's happened with First Republic has to do with technology. I mean, you used to have to go stand in line to get your money out of a bank. So if it was raining, you'd say, gee, I'm not going to go stand in line and look at the line at the bank that I'm going to have to go stand. So now Silicon Valley catered to some of the most sophisticated people on earth, as it's called, Silicon Valley. And their business model, if you look at the banks, your, your average bank, had 25% of their deposits over the $250,000 level. And of the 25%, it was less than $250,000. Silicon Valley had 87% over the $250,000 level, and it was in the millions. And they were making sure that every one of these tough counterparties, because it's hard if you're you know, a new fund or a venture fund or something like that, that they're going to give you a loan against your stock, but you're going to get your mortgage here. You're going to do all your banking here. You're going to have everything here. And we're going to make it difficult for you to leave until they all get together and decide to leave, which that's technology again. I mean, all these tech executives in a chat room deciding at the same time to leave. I'm also curious to see what some of them did after the fact, whether maybe some of them shorted the stock, but I'm not sure. But it's that technology didn't exist 10 years ago. The ability to just shift your funds and the ability to just all get together and discuss these things. Now, the other thing was, is that people who are running a fund like myself, we're a fiduciary. So if I'm earning 50 basis points at a bank and I can earn 4% buying a treasury, I'm supposed to do that. And lagging behind like they did is something which we've learned from that. We can all point our fingers at regulators and, gee, that's going to get us nowhere. Or we can say, like, we need to understand how technology is now in the banking community. If you look at a community bank, these are small banks that are less than $15 billion. They are in very remote areas. Most of the people are not that sophisticated. Most of the people have been with these banks their entire life, and they don't trust big banks. And these banks have a very, very loyal following. So the community bank is, is different. We're not seeing problems in the community in the tiny banks, and that's where the largest concentration is in the country. It's also interesting when you hear a politician get up, they love to talk about the community banks and, and all the things that happen, whether it be TARP or whether it be protecting the community banks, because the reason that trust preferreds are still outstanding is they're only outstanding for banks that are smaller than 15 billion because they didn't want to put pressure on them. So from a political standpoint, these community banks are very, very important.
By the way, guy, he mentions uh, Zervos from from Jeffries, uh, probably the best head of hair in the business. We got it. We got to just kind of get that, that out cat there. Right, he's got a lot of shit going on, man. I've seen he he. <laughs> I mean, he changes appearances more than like you know. I don't know, Nick. Yeah, Nick he, Cage he looks like and, an aging rock star, and 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 you know what? I think what Brett just endorsed is he is a rock star of the strategist on Wall Street here. Brett, help us with this, and, and this is interesting. So you guys, you know, guy just mentioned that we're recording this. This is Friday afternoon. You're going to be listening to this on Monday afternoon. Afternoon, that First Republic is down, you know, another 50% today. So the equity is, is basically wiped out here. And David Faber at CNBC was reporting throughout the course of this week that, you know, the FDIC, the Treasury, the Fed, the White House, they really wanted to find a solution from the banks that actually put that $30 billion in deposit in March in First Republic. They gave them 120 days. They were trying to shore up, right, their, their kind of deposit base here. The news earlier this week was that they were looking to unload some of these assets that they are underwater with. They wanted to kind of sell them back to the banks at a premium. And so the real question here was, okay, if you're Jamie Dimon or you're one of these big money center banks and you know ultimately you could either pay something for the equity here, you could backstop these assets, you could maybe stop what would be a run on maybe some similar sort of banks, or you could wait until it goes into receivership. And then basically the FDIC is going to take their insurance fund, right? And backstop that. So my question to you is what's going on here? Because I know that Larry Summers is out today on the tape being very critical of the the regulators that they haven't moved fast enough to kind of shore this bank up. Give us a sense of what you're thinking about, because there's few people, I think, that kind of understand this space as well as you do. First of all, I don't think the big mega banks, I don't think they want them buying any of these platforms. I mean, I think that that's why First Citizens from North Carolina took over Silicon Valley. I don't think they want these, these bigger banks getting bigger. First Republic basically was it just a small bank that decided to be very, very aggressive and go out and hire all these RIA platforms and bring them in and allow them to be very, very aggressive. So when you have sophisticated, you know, folks, most of the people who are going to these large, very successful RIAs, they're going to be able to move money when they hear there's a problem. This one's really baffling to me in many ways. I mean, sure, they're, everyone's talking about how we want to save this, but, you know, they can't go drop off their underwater securities which are underwater on a mark-to-mark basis, sell them to the Fed at par, and then sell themselves. So they would have to get some sort of waiver on that. I think that, you know, they're trying to figure out how to muster this one and how to figure it out. But I think that these things are happening too fast. And it's, it's one of these things where the regulators, they just can't react quick enough to it. But I also think they've hindered it because the JPs of the world are saying, well, what am I really buying? I'm buying your platform of RIAs who left JP Morgan because they didn't like what I was allowing them to sell. So how long are they gonna really hang around? So it's really, what are you buying? I wanna talk on one thing, which is probably the coolest thing that could happen, which I know a lot of people are gonna be you know, really focused on. And this is Silicon Valley bankruptcy, okay? The FDIC has really been holding out on releasing information. We know that there's three, we'll call it three and a half billion dollars of sub debt. And all that sub debt traded, you know, when the, they started to have problems. There's also over at least, at least a $6 billion net operating loss. And net operating losses are very, very interesting. Because net operating losses, you have to, to get the full value of that. You have to be in the restructured entity, an entity that has held the debt for more than 18 months being old and cold. The one thing I didn't talk about is there's $100 million of trust preferreds. We're the manager on $65 million of these. 
And that $100 million could allow that NOL to recoup the whole $6.5 billion in very short order, as opposed to getting the value of the debt, which would be $3 billion at 3% a year over 30 years. So this is a lot. And I'll even throw even more at you. It's called 382, uh, 382L5, and it's a bankruptcy code, which everybody talks about, which never happens. But because of these trust preferreds that have been sitting in these vehicles, there's a very, very good chance it could. And this is something where our 100 millions could be worth multiples. So everyone's asking, so how's Silicon Valley? Well, even if that doesn't happen, I'm highly confident that we're getting par back. But there's a chance that we could be getting multiples back in these vehicles, not directly to us, but we own all these parts of these vehicles. And that's just some of the fascinating stuff that goes on every day in structure. This is somewhat granular, but I'm going to take it to 30,000 feet for a second, because I know you follow these things as well. This has sort of been my hypothesis on all of this, and, and just indulge me for a second, Brett. So much of the employment in this country is predicated on small business. I think it's north of 70% of employees or from small to mid-sized businesses. I would submit that the lifeblood of those businesses is capital, typically capital from small and regional banks. So if that starts to whatever dry up or become more, um, I, I don't know what the word is, difficult to obtain, it's going to curtail by definition small and medium-sized businesses, which are the lifeblood of this economy. So this, listen, we're in the early innings of this. It's not happening tomorrow. But would this be something that would set some alarm bells off in your offices? Look, we're, I mean, I hate to say it, we're not in the equity business. We're, we're in the death business. We have a little saying here, par or failure. You're going to pay us par, you're going to fail. So, you know, we got a long road with these, these names here. It's are they going to make it? I think the last thing that anybody, you know, whether it be at the Fed or whether it be any politician wants to see is start systemic bank failures. Because what we learn in 2008 is when you have a banking crisis, you have a major crisis. What we learned during COVID is when you have a crisis in cruise ships and retail, people don't really care. Lending amongst community banks and, and regional banks has really, really slowed down for the past years. I mean, it, it has been slow. I'm sure that if you went to any hedge fund conference, you would see more people hawk in private credit funds because that's where they are. They've taken over for the lending that banks used to do. So I think we've already seen a lot of that. The CMBS problem, I think that because these deals have been out for a significant amount of time, I don't know how much it's going to be on the debt piece. But if you're owning CMBS B pieces, you might have a big problem. And most of those are held by specific funds that are out, you know, that are out there. There's a handful of them that are really, really focused on buying those MES pieces and CMBS deals. So, Brett, it sounds like that some of these things, because of your focus on community banks and because of what you just mentioned, is some of the trends as it relates to lending and the in the in the private credit. And and this is stuff that you know what we try to do here is have like people like you who are practicing in these spaces and try to extrapolate a little bit for our audience where this is kind of some some new sort of lingo here. How would you extrapolate some of these dislocations, right, that are happening? And and a lot of them were not at the forefront of many investors, at least you know in equity land, right? How would you extrapolate it a little bit? Guy just gave a sense for tighter credit in smaller banks. It has the potential to kind of choke off some growth. You just mentioned CMBS. If we're tracking, you know, the potential for defaults in the commercial real estate space, what are some themes that you think are going to be playing out over the course of this year? And talk to us a little bit about like, are there new opportunities that you see for your strategy? In our strategy, we, we have owned a lot of these 
uh, securitizations for a long time. We create securitizations where we have a reinsurance company, which most of our assets are going into, which the great thing about reinsurance and insurance is it's on a non-mark-to-market basis. These are great assets as long as they don't fail. You know, that's the big thing, but that's every insurance company. So we're getting a much longer view than we used to have. Um, what I would say is, is that, you know, you're going to have problems in specific financial institutions. There's no doubt about it. We've already seen it. Signature was a disaster. I mean, what they did with that over or that immediate Bitcoin conversion into cash at any time over the weekend. I mean, I don't know whoever approved that one. But you can go through and look at the handful that are here. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities. And I don't buy bank stocks. So let's be clear about this. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities with, you know, the baby being thrown out with the bathwater buying some of these financials that have been really beaten down in the regional bank space. Look, regionals were the stars during COVID. Regionals and community banks, the big ones were the ones that had the problems. During the financial crisis, the big ones were the ones that everyone said, you know, those are the ones that are the problems. So now we're back and we're pointing the finger at a different group. I think we have to figure out and really start to understand proactively what could happen. On the CMBS front, I think there's going to be some issues, but that's not so much on a debt front. That's more on a, just a, a changing dynamic and not as many people work in offices anymore. I don't think anyone predicted that. I think the biggest problem with this is, at least as far as I can remember in here, is we've never had a bank fail that didn't have credit problems. You had a bank fail because there was a run on the bank and it wasn't because of credit problems, because a bunch of people got together who were very intelligent and said, gee, there could be a problem. Let's take a look at this. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know. That's that's the first one. So, yeah, that's a problem. No, no, without question. And acknowledging that, you know, I know one one thousandth of your business as you do. But my instincts suggest that bond volatility, the likes of which we've seen over the last 18 months or so, is probably on the margins of really good thing for you guys, because this allows you to differentiate yourself and your products. Am I on to something there? Yeah. I mean, look, we're in, all of our products are floating rate. So we used to have a current yield of 6% and now we're at 11. That's, that's something that's really good. I think the problem with, there's a big difference from moving bonds back when I started in the business and, and dating myself, but you know, 1990 in the bond pit when the long bond was at 10% and it moved from 14 to 10 well, there's a big difference from moving from 14 to 10 than there is from moving from four to zero. And that type of volatility, that type of change, you have to remember also is that a lot of people got complacent with where rates were. And they thought that this money was going to continue at this. And then all of a sudden it moved rapidly. I mean, really rapidly. So that type of volatility, yes, has occurred. And it, is, it has been beneficial to us in many ways. It's been detrimental. It has helped banks in some ways just because of their net interest margin. But on the flip side, it's hurt a lot of banks because they have portfolios that are underwater, and that's something that nobody ever thought about. So I think that the Fed looks at things on really a one or two dimensional way, and they're not looking at it on a bigger picture way as we've never been here before. We've never been at zero for this long, and now we're going up to you know 4% on the 10-year. That's just something they haven't done. So, Brett, next week we're going to have the Fed in a meeting that is hotly anticipated. CME Fed Fund Futures is basically pricing an 80% chance that the Fed's going to raise 25 basis points. We're going to have a Fed fund at 5%. It's starting to creep up a little bit for the June meeting for the potential of, of a, another quarter point 
hike here. And, you know, you just mentioned the 10 year, which is really at three and a half percent here. And that spread is something that is really interesting to, let's say, Guy and me, as we think about, you know, the kind of investment landscape that we're, you know, kind of considering. And I'm just curious if we get to 5% and let's call it, let's say it's a dovish hike. Let's say the Fed really kind of intimates that they're kind of very nearly done here. What is the 10 year telling you at three and a half percent, and especially if it has some downward pressure, you know, to our eyes, it basically is reflective on maybe some of the weakening economic data that we're seeing. And I'm just curious, how does that play out for the banking sector? How does it play out for financials? Because you just mentioned that there's going to be babies thrown out with the bathwater. Do you think they've already been thrown out? Or do you think just kind of the economic uncertainty and the volatility that we've seen in rates, but also the Fed's commitment to continue to battle inflation and keeping maybe the Fed funds higher for longer than many people think? And what, what do you think some of the ramifications are of that? I think they need to lower rates. I think they need to lower rates because they brought them to a level where it makes a lot of things very, very difficult. I think they've been looking at a one-dimensional aspect with inflation. I think a lot of the inflation has been driven by a war. I think we're a much you know, different economy than we have been in the past because of the global aspects and because of technology and because of the ease and speed of things. I think if you look at the employment numbers, there's still an employment problem. I mean, a lot of that employment problem is which also driving inflation. So, yeah, you're saying, well, if I lower rates, what is that going to do? That's just going to bring us back to this point. But you have to remember, there's people out there who are saying now it's so much more expensive for me to go get a mortgage, get a car loan, to do all these different things because we're at this point. I think the 10 year is showing us that, sure, we're bringing rates higher, but we have an inverted curve. An inverted curve usually isn't a good thing. But it's usually inverted in different times for different reasons, you know, because things are much, much worse. I'm kind of mixed because I don't think we're taking the full picture. And I just think that the Fed, the regulators, everybody else, they need to take a broader picture of how things work today. You know, and that's a tough one for them to do. It just is. If you turn on CNBC and you listen to these economists come in, I mean, let's face it, they have not been able to say anything for 14 years. And now all of a sudden there's superstars that are out there, they're talking and everyone's saying it's not going to be 25, it's going to be 50. And, and we're going back to the same thing. How about giving us an opinion about how to address all the things from where we are, not so much an historical lesson of where we've been. We got smarter talking to you. The timing was perfect for this, Brett. We hope you'll come back. Um, you know, it, we, we feel like this is probably going to be a developing theme. Some of the things that we've talked about over the next couple months or quarters or so. So we hope you'll come back. And and at that point, you know, maybe Syracuse lacrosse is going to find their way. Being Duke this weekend. Up, we got we got the biggest game in a long time, right? I was up at the game. We were up by four against Duke, lost in overtime. Our goalie stood on his head. He played phenomenal. He, he is the best goalie in the country. They beat Duke this weekend down in Durham. They're in. They're in. And I'm telling you, Gary's got them focused. But, you know, with this whole COVID thing, you've got 24-year-old seniors. They're starting seven freshmen. These kids are babies. In two, three years, they're going to be they're going to be dynamite. So I'm excited about that. But let's hope they can pull one out this weekend. We're rooting for them. And then hopefully we'll see you at a PLL game uh, this summer. Brett, we really appreciate all your commentary. We got smarter, as I said. So hopefully we'll see you back on the pod very soon. Thanks a lot. That would be great. Thank you. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi.
If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.